Welcome to History Lab. I'm your host, Anna Clark. This is Listen to Darlinghurst, a History Lab series produced by Catherine Franey. In this episode, we explore two efforts to regulate Darlinghurst's nightlife, each a century apart. My dad, he used to have a saying, watch out for the wowsers. The wowsers are your worst enemy. I think there are huge parallels between the 6pm closing of pubs in 1916 and the lockout laws in 2014. And it's funny that they're almost exactly 100 years apart. My name is Paul Solomon and my family's been in the pub business in Darlinghurst for generations. My name's Max Burns McCroovy. I own Journey Walks, which runs crime history tours around Darlinghurst, King's Cross, Surrey Hills, the city. My mother and father and grandfather owned the Royal Sovereign Hotel on the corner of Darlinghurst Road and Liverpool Street. It's now called the Darlow Bar. I was born here and I've got some lovely, happy memories of the pub. But the pubs used to be run differently then. There was no such thing as responsible service of alcohol rules. Family could work in the pub. I mean, I was you know, underage most of the time. The hotel's closed at 6 o'clock. In New South Wales, the 6pm closing of pubs started with the soldiers' riots in 1916. The soldiers' riot had been brewing for a while at Liverpool and Kasula training camps. These camps uh, were training bases for young men who were basically signing up to go to the war to get them battle fit for the front. There were pubs in Liverpool nearby and in 1915 there was a couple of attempts for soldiers to knock off and go to these pubs and people realised that there should be some control over whether alcohol could be taken from these pubs back to camp and to not allow the soldiers to have time spent off at the pub. In early 1916, on Valentine's Day in fact, they announced that their weekly training schedule was now going to be increased to 40 hours. The soldiers who already felt they were training too much without enough downtime decided that was it, that was too much, and they were going to strike. Thousands of men started to walk off different training camps, hit the pubs in Liverpool, and they become an unruly mob as soon as they realise that they can start to basically drink for free, not pay their bill, get behind the bar, take all of the liquor, get the kegs out of the cellar, and have a wild party in the morning there. So it's going to start to buzz, and they wanted to take their protest further, and they knew there were many more pubs in the city. So they decided to commandeer a couple of civilian trains that went to Central Station and then pour out at Central Station and then the, the craziest pub crawl of the early 20th century in Sydney began. There was estimated in, in tens of thousands of pounds worth of damage to property, to shops, uh, all of the booze that was stolen and it did turn deadly. The soldiers' riot was fuel to the fire for the temperance movement that said alcohol was the cause of the breakdown of morality and that young men's temptation to get drunk was taking them away from their duty. People were very embarrassed and tried to hide in international media that our diggers had smashed up Sydney and, you know, weren't going to be responsible soldiers. 
the government needed to show action, show that they were in control. So a referendum is going to take place. New South Wales was going to vote on not abolishing alcohol altogether, but decreasing the hours that pubs could be open. And New South Wales was pushed enough by the war effort and by this temperance movement and by the publicity created around this riot that they decided, perhaps only for a temporary measure, that pubs should close at 6pm. It is very ironic, this idea of, well, stop it early and that'll stop drunkenness. No, it'll just increase uh, more drinking in that hour that you can get it done. And with that, more violence on the street, men coming back to their families drunk, boozed up and causing domestic problems. It also meant that a lot of men were kicked out and were still thirsty. And the moment that they wanted to purchase alcohol elsewhere, it meant that they were entering into an illegal trade. Yes, my grandfather did slag rock. Everyone did slag rock in those days. The, the alcohol restrictions were so great. So he used to sit at the bottom of the stairs with beer and whiskey and things like that and sell it to people when they knocked on the door with a special knock. Just like Prohibition in America, you started to have organised crime revolving around selling alcohol after hours and there was a lot of police corruption. We had licensing police that used to come in and raid the place. I mean, when I say raid the place, they'd come in and I'd just have to go into the cellar and fill up their car with boxes of beer. You know, two or three times a year was just expected of you. We had one manageress who was the girlfriend of a famous policeman, Fred Cray. Cray had a relationship with our manageress and um, he would come around almost every day, you know, um, when she had her break, he'd go with her to a room. And he used to, on Saturday afternoons, he would take over one of the bars and sell TV sets that were stolen. And he was a very highly feared person, so he did change the atmosphere of the pub a bit. In New South Wales, the 6pm closing of pubs finally came to an end in 1955. Once six o'clock closing finished, um, the pubs could then open it um, to 10 o'clock, then 11 o'clock, then 12 o'clock. And the pub became so much more than just a place to go and drink. It was a community. It was an incredibly vibrant, fantastic place. Uh, the big change came when they brought in the lockout laws. There was two very unfortunate murders in Darlinghurst, or in King's Cross was thought to be alcohol-induced. This is what weekends in Sydney look like. booze fueled battles on the city's streets, and it can end in tragedy. The new measures are tough, and I make no apologies for that. What's been happening on Sydney CBD streets demands strong action. The package, which is tougher than many expected, includes a 1.30am lockout of licensed premises across the expanded CBD precinct. When the lockout rules came, they were very strict, they were very strictly enforced, and the whole community were behind them. Well, not the whole community, but we, there were demonstrations. But the press was pushing for them and the doctors were pushing for them. We've seen more than 50% reduction in serious head injuries in our intensive care unit. 
Resident groups say they no longer live in fear. People can now go out, enjoy a social drink, enjoy time with their friends and feel safe. My name's Tyson Coe and I am the founder of Keep Sydney Open and we were one of the main groups fighting the Sydney lockout laws. As a younger man, I remember walking around the streets of Darlinghurst and just being completely enchanted by, by the streets and the cafes and all the shops and the energy of the streets as well. I mean, I'm, I'm gay and certainly it's a place where a lot of queer people come to feel accepted and so I ended up moving there. I just thought that it was one of the best suburbs to live and this was in 2002 and so as someone who has lived in the area, someone who has attempted to find my tribe in the area, Darlinghurst really was it for me. At the time when the lockout laws were hotly debated, there was always this sense that the lockout laws weren't just to do something about nighttime safety, but there were these other agendas at play. I mean, you certainly had a lot of property prices enjoy record highs as a result of the lockout laws, particularly around the King's Cross area. But in Darlinghurst, there was this sense of maybe these laws are about something else, about some kind of social editing or cleansing um, to some extent. I mean, you have to remember that the reason why the laws were introduced in the first place were because of one-punch deaths that occurred in King's Cross, so not even in the Darlinghurst precinct. And so I think there was a lot of resentment towards the laws. Darlinghurst in particular was a queer-friendly space, and it still is, but especially around the time of Mardi Gras, which is when the precinct really comes alive, people used to come from all over the world um, and really just descend on the area and give it more colour and life, and people just didn't do that after the lockout laws were introduced. And it was such a shame because a lot of these businesses were queer friendly, really relied on visitors from other suburbs and other parts of the world. And then that lifeline was really cut off when the laws were introduced. It just made the area really undesirable because it was an area that was in large part defined by what happened after dark. So yeah, I think in terms of culture, obviously when you're talking about a loss of venues, you're talking about a loss of jobs and you're talking about less stages for musicians to perform on. And of course, all the communities that really rely on these venues for a place to congregate and a place for self-expression. Well, my dad, my dad, he used to have a saying, watch out for the wowsers. The wowsers are your worst enemy. The do-gooders are the people who are the biggest enemy to society. So this was an instance that the whole family just shrugged our shoulders and said that they've got their way. But eventually, sanity will prevail, and I think sanity has prevailed. I think a lot of those laws have been weakened. Well, I think Darlinghurst is really interesting in the fact that it's really led the way for the small bar scene. When licensing changed around 2007 so that many small venues could afford to sell liquor on their premises, 
they opened their doors. They were never really places that were staying open later than midnight, but they were quirky small bars with themes. And Darlinghurst had already started to get a great following in little pocket bars around the place. And whilst they were affected purely because people weren't going out as much around Darlinghurst, the cross after the lockout laws were brought in. It did allow some of these smaller venues that were never worried about trying to stay open till all hours anyway to define themselves, to gain a following. And they seem to be the winners that have come out of it. A lot of late night clubs and you know adult entertainment and big hotels on the corner have really suffered or closed in Darlinghurst and particularly in the cross but many, many more small bars have opened in their place. Now that the lockout laws have come and gone, I certainly have hopes that the future of Darlinghurst will be bright. I think the area has proven itself to be culturally important and one of the iconic precincts within Sydney as a whole. And I think a lot of younger people, and queer people in particular, are just hungry to get back out there, particularly in a post-pandemic environment. That was the last episode of a special History Lab series centred on Sydney's Darlinghurst. I'm Anna Clark. Joining me now is Catherine Franey, producer of Listen to Darlinghurst. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Anna. So what prompted this final episode, this instalment? Well, it occurs to me as somebody that has been in Sydney over the last kind of 10 years that the lockout laws really had quite a transformational effect in certain areas where they were applied. I mean, they were not applied everywhere across the state. They were just applied in certain areas, in Sydney and Newcastle. Darlinghurst was one of them. And I was really interested to read an article by a scholar at University of Sydney called Kane Race. It was called The Sexuality of the Night. And it was talking about how the lockout laws impacted sexual minorities in particular, so queer and trans people. Nightlife has been a particularly important site of self-expression and sociality historically and in the present. And people from these communities are often the targets of nighttime violence, but rarely the perpetrators of it. And Kane Race talks about nightlife as being kind of a pedagogical space. It's where you encounter difference, you rub up against difference, you meet people who do life quite differently to you. And, of course, I mean, the great criticism of the Sydney lockout laws was that it was a real sledgehammer approach Mm. to a very specific problem and probably a bit of a misdiagnosis. So one of the things that Kane Race suggests is that perhaps the larger problem is to do with the socialisation of young men, etc. So I wanted to bring out all of those ideas. But in researching the story, I also became more aware than I was of just how fraught the issue was following the violent death of two Mm. young men and how heartfelt the efforts were of people who were behind the lockout laws Mm. and supportive of them to really address what seemed to be a crisis. Mm. So it was a really complex story in that sense. But 
Bringing in the other case of six o'clock closing, I guess I knew something about that history from having worked in urban history around Sydney. So I thought, well, how about we look at these two stories as a sort of study of unintended consequences? Mm. I remember Inga Clendinen saying to me once in an interview for a project that I did a very long time ago, the late Inga Clendinen, she, she just defined history as the study of unintended consequences. And so, um, yeah, look, I think there are some very interesting unintended consequences. Mm consequences from both of these. Of course, with six o'clock closing, you get the stimulation of the sort of roaring sly grog trade and the six o'clock swill. Mm. And with the lockout laws, a real shutdown of the nighttime economy amongst other consequences. Mm. So yeah, that was what was going on. (laughs) I'm a total hermit, you'll be very surprised to learn, who's you know moderately agoraphobic and I can't think of anything worse than being out in a loud, noisy night out on town. Yet I was really moved by this story. You know, I was transported into these places. What do you think telling these kind of histories, perhaps the histories of unintended consequences, but also the histories, as you say, of of these important pedagogical spaces, what can they help illuminate? Is there a historical lesson or is it more about just understanding ourselves, do you think? Yeah, look, I think the authorities are not really drawing on the lessons and the experiences of the past in passing sweeping legislation out of a need to be seen to be addressing what is undeniably a problem, Mm. but perhaps not taking the time or deploying the kind of nuance to really come up with effective strategies. Or listen to all of the stories, the Mm. sort of diversity of stories Mm. that make up that moment or that experience of place and attachment to place Mm. in its very diversity, which has been sort of the whole point, I think, to these Darlinghurst audio stories. Yeah, and I guess it's the idea of an ecosystem. It's made up of a lot of different intersecting... There's a symbiosis, Mm. a sort of social symbiosis that happens. It's a social symbiosis, but it's also a relationship over time, isn't it? Because it's not just a series of nows. It's actually a series of inheritances as well. Listen to Darlinghurst is a production of the Australian Centre for Public History in partnership with the Paul Ramsey Foundation. The sound engineer is Judy Rapley. Music in today's story by Blue Dot Sessions and Daisy May. Archival material from ABC Content Sales. Thanks to Britta Jorgensen and Sarah Gilbert at Impact Studios UTS. History Lab is made on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose land was never ceded. I'm Anna Clark, and if you want more history in your feed, head to your favourite podcatcher for more episodes of History Lab. <laughs> <laughs>